everybody, and welcome aboard for another trip on the Michelle Mission. Two men, one podcast, every black film ever made. My name is Len, aka the Bat Tribble of Black Tribbles fame. And as always, I am joined by uh, this is Vincent Williams of It's All Soul G Town Radio. Wednesday nights, eight to ten. Yes, yes. People, um, I talked to someone who um, I, I forgive me. I'm drawing a blank on the person's name who said that they, from listening to the Michelle Mission, okay, tuned into It's All Soul. Nice, and said like, "Oh, Vincent's really his show is really good. He really knows oh. his stuff." Nice. Well, thank you. So that was really cool. All right, ladies and gentlemen, tonight on the Michelle Mission, we are going back into 1968, a very turbulent time in our nation's history, to check out Uptight, a tense drama um, starring Julian Mayfield, Ruby D, uh, Raymond St. Jock, and directed by... Uh, Jules Desan, I believe that I believe I got that name correct. Yes, yes, Jules Desan. Um, real cool uh, piece of black cinema that we're going to be reviewing tonight. But first, we're going to take a look at um, emails. Everyone, you know, you can email us at michellemission at gmail dot com, or you can leave us a message on Facebook. Or you can uh, like us on Facebook at Michelle Mission. Uh, and you can leave a message for us there or hit us up on, on on Twitter. Some feedback that we've gotten from the last couple of weeks. We haven't checked on uh, bringing you some feedback because we did our pre-recorded show last week with Dorian Messick. Yes, yes, absolutely. That was so much fun. Man. Oh, man. He is no joke. He was, he was a cool, cool dude. Cool dude. Cool dude. Shout out to Dorian Messick. Shout out to the Messicks. Yeah, shout out to the Messicks. Who, unfortunately... Uh, you didn't know this when we were recording this. Um, we were like uh, in like this kind of like, uh, as you can hear, like music was all around. Right, us. right, right, right. We're in this like lounge area in his hotel. Um, and as we were recording, recording, his wife, Simone Missick, uh, peeked in. Yes. Uh, at us. Uh, but your back was. I was about to say, I didn't see her. Your so. back was to her. Uh, so she just kind of like waved high yes. before going upstairs. She had come in from a screening, so yes. she was very tired. I'm sorry that I missed Mrs. Missick, Simone Missick. Yeah, I wish that we did have the opportunity to to like really say hi. We yeah. just like waved from, from afar. Um, but uh, uh, she has expressed interest in being on the show. Hey, man. Doing an episode. I don't know what movie she wants to do, so hey. she'll let us know. Um and she is going to be Misty Knight. I was about to say she's a busy lady. She's so busy, so busy, we, busy. We'd have to fit into her schedule, but absolutely. She's Misty Knight in Marvel's Luke Cage, which will be debuting on Netflix on September thirtieth. So it's probably so going to be like in early October that we're looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. Me too. So it'll probably be in sometime in early October when we will um make arrangements to get Simone Missick Misty Knight. Uh, right here on the Michelle Mission. That's very optimistic. <laughs> Why? Yeah, I mean, I just assume she's doing like busy Netflixy stuff. But yeah, well, the I, mean, gonna do- I hope you're right. I hope you're. I'm just. I hope you're right. Look, I I figure. Hey, I figure this. Hey, I figure this. She's expressing interest. Hey, if she lets us know. Hey, wait a minute. If she lets us know now, because you know we're we're we're. 
we're Twitter friends now. Okay. <laughs> we're, twi- we're, t- we're Twitter buddies. We're Twitter mates. Okay. You know, you know. Uh, so if she lets us know exactly what movie she wants to review um, now. So you have from now until early October to watch the film. And then at most we need an hour of her time on the phone. Okay. Hey. And it can be done at any time. Hey, man. I'm very excited about that. That'd be awesome. So Simone, call us. <laughs> and turn some of your free time. <laughs> Go ahead. Go. All right. So um so and we appreciate all the feedback we absolutely get to the, uh, to absolutely always people, uh, always said they really enjoyed that show. It was nice. It was, it was nice to hear, you know, Dorian drop some little, you know, playing Mr. Hollywood a little bit. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It was like it was like our own He's a real he's he's a real interesting dude. It was like Michelle Mission colon Hollywood husbands. Yeah. You know, it yeah. was really cool. Um we also heard from one of our more devoted fans, uh Robert Monroe Jr. hit us up on Facebook. Hey, what's up, Robert? Um saying that uh he was looking forward to and enjoyed our take on Brother from Another Planet. Okay. And mentioned that John Sales, the director, is from the town that I live in now, Schenectady, New York. Oh, okay. Uh, I've spoken with him a few times when he's premiered films in in town. The first time I met him, I told him that everyone I knew thought that Brother was written and directed by a black man. Nobody believed me that a white guy had made it. He said that he's heard that a lot. Yeah, yeah. I can definitely believe that. Uh, Then he went on, Robert goes on. To, to say that when he was in college, he was hanging out with two brothers when this white boy came up to us and asked if we'd seen Terminator 2 yet at this time. Okay. It was new in movies then. And uh, they hadn't. Uh, the white guy said they had to, that we had to check it out because it was one of the most racist movies he's ever seen. Interesting. So we hopped in a car and went to the cinema. And yes, it is one of the most racist, racist movies we've ever seen for many reasons joe morton's character in terminator 2 is responsible for creating skynet yes he is linda hamilton the mother kicks morton's character's ass sarah connor in front of his wife and son yes yes and instead of slapping her back morton is crying and blubbering like a baby and then sacrifices himself to save the others. Now, if Morton's black genius could cause the problem, couldn't his black genius also solve it? It seems like it would. Interestingly, white feminists gravitated to Hamilton's character, Linda Hamilton's character, as a strong female sci-fi figure, ignoring how she gained her strength partially through beating up a black man in front of his wife, and son to me that's the epitome of white feminism all right hmm, that's an interesting read certainly an argument about feminism that has been made before that oftentimes women of color and women who aren't middle class are sacrificed at the altar of middle class white women that is certainly not the he's not the first or fifth person that has made that argument Okay. I will say this though, as far as racist, racist classic movies, I will see your Terminator two, and raise you a Back to Future. Back to the Future. Back to the Future. As racist. As racist, the dude done realize that he can be mayor 
until Michael J. Fox tells him he can be mayor and then Michael J. Fox invents rock and roll. Hey, Chuck, this is your cousin. You know that new sound you're looking for? Listen to this. Okay, that's true. So, okay. All right. All right. So, well, there. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can get together to watch Terminator 2 and um, Back to the Future and be angry together. You know, it's an essay I read. And we gonna keep, we, I know we, we're doing it. But there's an essay I read, and I, I don't know who wrote it. Like, in my mind, I want to say Frances Cress Welsing wrote it. Okay. But I don't think she did. I was actually looking for it when uh, we did Brother from Another Plane because I was looking for race and eighty science fiction stuff. But I read an article. Oh, here you go. Maybe, maybe, maybe the Michelle Missionaries can help me. I'm a show missionaries. I read an article years ago that framed the first Alien the as first movie. Alien. The first movie Alien okay. Okay. as representing white suburban fear. Of the black penis. Because in a lot of ways. You can look at Alien as. A, a, a rape movie. Because remember in the first Alien. We don't know the logistics of the queen. Yeah. and it's that, All we know is that. It's this. this you, you know and this. I'm, I'm paraphrasing from the essay. This giant oily black penis. Mm-hmm. Running around after this white woman. Mm-hmm. Through this sort of makeshift urban landscape, you know, the, the, the Nostromo ship, remember it's all dark and it's, you yeah. know, yeah. Trying to basically rape her. Yeah. I don't know who wrote this article. Like I said, read. I read this article like 20 some odd years ago and was like, wow. And I thought about, so, so, you know, sort of racialized, sort of contemporary racialized readings of 80 science fiction films. Is something I'm I'm kind of fond of, because the '80s were weird. Okay, the '80s were weird, and sure. I, and you don't have to like you. It doesn't take much kind of pulling back the layers of onion mm-hmm. to see the ickiness going on underneath. You're not pulling back a lot to get to there. Where yeah, the, where that um went so so you know that's interesting if anybody knows the article that i'm thinking about yeah hit us up hit us up because i'm i've been trying to hunt it down for like three weeks now all right cool all right all right um uh yet another childhood dashed upon the rocks along the way of the michelle mission (laughs) let's get into 1968's uptight Advertising on Amazon Prime for together, this movie is very misleading. The image for Uptight 
is that of a bemused Roscoe Lee Brown with a wry smirk on his face, giving off the impression that the film we're about to watch might be in the vein of 70 comedies such as Uptown Saturday Night. But that's far from the truth. Not only does Uptight precede Uptight, uh, Uptown Saturday Night into theaters by several years, premiering in 1968 in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King, it paints a stark portrait of black America unfiltered by any middle ground kowtowing or massage rhetoric of peace. To say that the fuse is lit on the tension bubbling out of every corner sewerway is to dismiss the seemingly war-torn streets of Cleveland on which this tale is set. The film centers on Tank, an alcoholic ex-steel mill worker who is devastated by King's death, so much so that he is in no condition to make a scheduled hit on a warehouse for some guns with his black radical brethren, including his childhood buddy Johnny, played by Max Julian, last seen on the mission stirring the pot in 1966, The Black Klansman. Mm-hmm. Tank's absence is felt when Johnny comes out of a sweaty shirt in the middle of the heist, runs into the security guard who Johnny kills before making his getaway with his crew, but without his shirt, which has his name stitched inside. More on that later. <laughs> this leads to a massive manhunt by the police for Johnny, which drops a kiloton of guilt on the easily confused and frustrated tank superbly played by Julian Mayfield, who also had a hand in uh, adapting this script along with co-star Ruby D and the director Jules Desson. From there, we're taken behind the scenes of the black militant movement circa late sixties, freshly dressed in dashikis and Nehru attire but angry, righteously so, over the quote-unquote missteps of peaceful civil disobedience and its sad outcome. Janine, one of the militants who uh, says that the man from love got his head shot off and all those people learned nothing, to which her, her man, BG, leader of the committee, responds, death is a fast teacher. Mm. The movie gives an accounting of the black radicals state of mind and purpose at this critical time in our country's history. But the crux of the story is the slow yet steep descent into sweaty despair, despondence and disillusionment by Tank. Mayfield gives Tank's mumbled ramblings and drunken arrogance an underscore of loss. He's a lost soul. Nothing means nothing no more. A good man, a great man is dead. His friends reject him to lie alone in his stupor and his best friend is complicit in all this which is enough justification for Tank to turn on them and his best friend we talk about how we'll go for the bumpiest rides in the movie forgiving it of all its faults if we had at least enjoyed the trip uptight this movie it doesn't stick the landing Uh, The finale just kind of happens as opposed to being something that is reached for and won. But there is so much to admire in this film from the performance of of Raymond St. Jocks as BJ, (laughs) BG, excuse me, Janet McLaughlin as Jeannie. uh, Talk about your underappreciated stars of the 70s and an incredibly charismatic debut of 
Dick Anthony Williams as Corbin, uh, who comes across as like a, a mini Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in this movie, but it's just like with so few words uh, says so much in this in this movie. From that all the way to the cinematography of Boris Kaufman, Descends Direction, um, the setting that the city of Cleveland paints for this movie, uh, it all coalesced to, together to create a very unexpected, yet in my mind, great movie. I really 100% enjoyed the hell out of Uptight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- I think unexpected. It, this this was so good. Yeah, it was so good. And and I have to say, this is um, this is one of the joys of doing this show. You know, I be, thought be, that same thing be, because um, this was Lynn's choice. I had no idea this film ever existed. Like like, and there are so many sort of um levers in this film that I pull mm-hmm. that somehow I never got to this. Like I'm a huge fan of the work of Raymond St. Jock. I'm a huge fan of, um, of Roscoe Lee Brown. You know, I'm a huge fan of, you know, these films obviously from this period. Uh, w- what a great film. What a great film. I think, I, I think one of the things it, it's a great film, but then it's also a really interesting film. Yeah, And I think the, to sort of begin the conversation about how interesting it is, I think it's easy to look at this film and, and kind of lump it into black exploitation and say that, you know, you, you kind of look at a lot of the players involved and, yeah. you, and you look yeah. at the plot and say, oh, well, maybe this is black exploitation, especially with the title being the, and the title is well. uptight. Yeah. But this film came out in 1968 before all that. It predates Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song by three years. And the first thing I thought as I got to like 20, 30 minutes into the film, who was the audience for this thing? Mm -hmm. Like who who was, you you know, director uh, Jules Dayson, Dayson, I I may be mispronouncing his name. Like who was he kind of directing this thing? You know, as, as Lynn sort of uh just talked about it's actually adapted from an older work yeah the informer the informer a 1934 movie by john ford well and before that oh, the book it, the, the book, book was 34 and then there was a movie by uh, and made with that john ford made right, right and right. instead of the black power movement and the police it was it, it was a, a, a fight it is about the irish army and the irish conflict so this is mm-hmm. something that sort of transported to this contemporary situation Mm -hmm. the fact that this came out in 68 Martin Luther King is assassinated April 4th this film incorporates footage from his funeral so that the turnaround for this thing must have been remarkable yeah he the the I think he was assassinated not long after they were finishing the, the filming of the movie. What did they do? Change the script? Well, they they just they knew that they were going to be playing off of the whole black militant movement versus the whole right, right. And so they did augment the script. But a then when bit. he was actually assassinated, they sort of add those lines exactly. towards the beginning, and it is absolutely remarkable yeah. looking at this thing as as at the moment 
commentary yeah. on this very real push and pull mm-hmm. between the the sort of the, the the sort of classic civil rights movement that we all think of, you know, SCLC and the preachers and this that, and other, and then sort of the post radicalization of SNCC and the Black Panthers and and this real conflict between you know in a lot of ways generations exactly and you know i I think you know 2016 and we all dr king and we love dr king and its statues and stuff and dr king we don't talk about the fact that when dr king was assassinated he had fallen out of favor with a lot of black people and they won't admit it now but especially black people who were in their early 20s and younger Mm -hmm. For a lot of them, Martin Luther King was wrongheaded. And I, I like it actually, again, I keep using the word remarkable, but there's a point where, you know, that early, that scene that you talk about where, where Max Julian's character, Johnny, goes to get Tank, and Tank has fallen off the wagon and, and Tank is drunk. And at one point, Tank rants at Johnny and says, Why don't you call him a white man's nigga now? Yeah. Yeah. With the implication being that Johnny and the rest of this group were very much against Dr. King. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for this to come out in 1968, in the midst of, in the midst of it, yeah. is amazing. It's even more amazing when you think about it because it shocks you when this movie first comes on. It's Paramount Pictures. Right. This is this is not, you know, like Vin Ventrobi or, or whatever, some kind of like independent feature. This yeah. is Paramount Pictures putting money behind this. Reluctantly a little bit as you read the history. Yeah, but sure. They still put sure. their name, their sure. imprint on this film. Yeah. So you start with that. Like just that like just that right there makes this unimportant film to me. Like right that right there, the fact that you have again, you know, I talk about documentary evidence yeah. of what was happening with Dr. King and within the civil rights movement. Yeah. That in and of itself makes it important. You look at the performances in this thing. Like you look at Raymond St. Jock, who, you know, I think it's 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 kind of funny that Raymond St. Jock is in here playing the character BG. And who is sort of, you know, one of the leaders mm-hmm. of the of this black power movement, because when I think of Raymond St. Jock, I think of him from the two ad- adaptations of um, the Chester Himes novels uh, that, that were made in the movies. Cotton Comes to Harlem and Come Back Charleston Blue, where he plays one of the detectives, um, Coffin Ed Johnson. Yeah. And I think it's a pro because this very much feels like something that Chester Himes could have written. Like like you know you have this sort of crime mm-hmm. and you have this case but but you know the great thing about Chester Himes and 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 you know the, you know the movies don't do Chester Himes as much credit as they should but I I still think they they do really well is that Chester Himes is very much interested in the black community. Mm-hmm. And blackness and, and, and all these different aspects of blackness. And, you know, you look at this film and you have the black radicals and, and, and you have the, 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 the people in the bar and, and, and you have the people in the community. And, you know, you have all these different ass, this, this great kaleidoscope of blackness at this moment. So I, I think it's very appropriate that Raymond St. Jock is in here. And then Roscoe Lee Brown. Yeah. Who plays this sort of 
flamboyant homosexual black detective. He's not a detective. No, it's he's a um, kind of like a, he's kind of like an informant. He's an informant, but 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 he has access to yeah. stuff like like I think you're kinda right. Like, a, like maybe like almost like a crime photographer type of way. I think the reason I kind of granted him official status is because that first amazing scene where he's sort of throwing around the word nigga in the room with the white men who are visibly the only brother in there, yeah, because he's calling them out. Mm-hmm. Is that he did have this sense of authority in the room. Yeah. Now maybe they just needed him so much right. that he had this leeway to talk about. It. But he plays this character again. His flamboyance is barely hiding his self-loathing, and you know it's a self-loathing, you know, sort of born out of his homosexuality. It's a self-loathing born out of the fact that he is an informant. Yeah. But Roscoe Lee Brown is one of those actors that just sort of elevates everything he does yeah so you know you have roscoe lee brown and then roscoe lee brown and then just you, you know i could just list the performances because you know we haven't talked about ruby d no we have who's not. in there for like maybe three or four scenes for whom some some of our audience it may be shocking to see ruby d i was you know i was not just, gray hair i was just about to say that or or real young black and white in raising in the sun yeah, like I was looking at this, realizing I have not seen a lot of Ruby D of young, colored, young, vibrant. You yeah. know, unless she's with um Ozzy Davis. Ozzy, yeah, I guess I saw her in uh Ruby D's in Pearly, isn't she? The film is, is Ruby D in Pearly. She maybe it's been so long. Since right, I know Ozzy Davis is anyway, but she's fantastic. So you have all of these wonderful performances, yeah, which just says that, and then. You you talked about the the cinematographer um Boris Kaufman Boris Kaufman, the direction in the cinema. This film is beautiful. Yeah, man, this is a beautiful film. Just it shot is. like like the opening shot, where where you you know as you just talked about, they break into the warehouse. Okay, the use of light and shadow. Yeah, because a lot of this movie is shot at night. It's shot at night, but the use of the shadow in the negative space is absolutely masterful. Like there are scene there are shots in that first scene where all you see are hands, Mm -hmm. you see half of Max Julian's face, you Mm -hmm. see silhouettes, you see shadow, and it's so deliberate and it's the, the composition is so well put together. Yeah. And and like you said, the vast majority of the film is shot at night. Mm-hmm. So you have all that, but then you get these the wonderful use of color. Right. So you know like the like like the use of the red neon lights mm-hmm. and and the reds in the bar and the reds that people are wearing. And and then you know there's there's a wonderful scene because again, I was attracted to the reds. And you have all these scenes with the reds. There's a scene where Tank is on the roof with BG, yeah, and the two, and two two of of his compatriots, where it's all blues. Mm-hmm. BG's uh, Nehru jacket is blue. There's light that's blue. Everything is blue, and and it sort of visually lets you know that Tank is out of whack. Yeah, with everything else, and just again, just on the level of um technical skill. 
And, you know, I think if you've listened to the Michelle Mitch, you know, this is really more Lynn. Like, Lynn talks more about the cinematography and the lighting and this, that, and the other. And I'm not as interested. But sometimes it's so well done, you can't help but notice it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the. Because when it is well done, like you just noticed how the blues, what that tells you about Tank's character and his mindset there. When it is well done, it informs the movie. Yes. It informs the scene and it, it, it just helps you so much. There is one, there's a scene that the cops, there's the, the man, there's a scene that everybody talks about when, when the, they chase down Johnny into the tenements yes. of, of the projects and the, and, uh, Everyone in the projects are going, you know, they're going to protect Johnny. They're going to protect one of their own. And the cops are down there. They, they're shining the spotlights up into the, up into the, uh, the, um, into the, into the windows, into the, the, the trellises, uh, of this tenement. And everybody that's up there is on the balconies. They start raining down bottles on top of the cops, you know, it all in trying to help Johnny get away. And ultimately, you know, Johnny tries to get away and, and, and it's really so well shot in that, you know, this balcony and these, and, and these, um, fire escapes, you know, they're all metal and, and it's a sprawling kind of like complex yet as the cops are shooting, you know, and like, you know, making everybody scatter so that they can, you know, free up, you know, a, a sight line to Johnny and as Johnny is running around it's very sprawling but it slowly starts to compact yes and all that metal becomes Johnny almost running around in like a cage it, like you can't find a way like out a of this cage yeah, exactly yeah. He's, he's a cage or like a rat's maze of a sort you know as they just slowly like pin him down pin him down to the point when they finally get him and then you see Max Julian kind of like uh, up front in the camera. And and as he is slumping, the camera does this really fantastic like swirl yeah. of a shot. It, it's, it's as amazing. it turns to his point of view of his body slumping down until, until the balcony until all you see is from now his point of view his sister and his mother looking up oh at yeah i mean when i saw that shot i froze the movie and said that was masterful yeah oh that yeah w- that was so cool oh yeah, yeah. i mean it, that it's that alone that whole scenario alone is worth the price of admission to yeah. this movie and yet that's my second favorite scene Culture Kings is a podcast on the How Stuff Works Network, hosted by comedians Jaquiz Neal and Edgar Montplacier. Every Wednesday and Friday, these two friends dive into topics ranging from sports, music, to movies, style. They wonder whether or not Donald Glover is a genius or a weirdo. They continuously decipher Kanye West's tweets and behavior. They also have recurring segments like Queen of the Week, The List, and Top Fives like Marvel Movies and Video Games. Listen to Culture Kings and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and find out the best way to eat a taco. Oh, what's the best way to eat a taco, Vince? 
With your hands? With your hands. Also, with salsa on top of everything to hold the ingredients down. It's like a layer. It's the layer. Right. So that the lettuce doesn't fall off. Can't have falling lettuce. Wow. You know what my my favorite scene in the whole movie was? I have no idea. The part where Tank is drunk and he's on this sort of self-loathing bender and he goes to the the carnival. Oh, when he's in the arcade. And, and, and he's in the House of Mirrors. Mm-hmm. And there are some very sort of stereotypical white people. And they ask Johnny about, you know, what is it that you blacks want? Are you, you one of those black militants? What are you going to do? Yeah. And Johnny spins this sort of wild tale yeah. about what the blacks are going to do. And he's in a house of mirrors. So the direction you just see the reflections of all of these people. Mm-hmm. All distorted. All, the all distorted and all the mirrors. And it's almost like a horror thing. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's the moment that I stopped it and I said, wow, like what is happening right now? Like this, like this is amazing. Like I can't even believe this is happening. Well, see, I I did like that scene, it um uh uh, uh how it was done and kind of what what it was saying, but there was a part of me that didn't like that scene because by the point in that movie that it comes, you know. I, I'm no like like Tank is 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 the one that's taking you for the ride in this movie. Yes, but by the by that point in this movie, I am one hundred percent against Tank. Yes, and that scene and in that scene, Tank is the protagonist in yeah. that little scene. And I didn't want him to be the protagonist in that scene. I liked it, and I liked it for what it's for what it for what it represents, especially in this movie that, like you say, presents all sides. It's like, yeah, oh yeah, like that that scene, that scene is that's who this movie is for. This movie is for that audience, those people in that mirror. And exactly. That's it's, who this movie is it, for. It's funny because one of the things that I admired so much about the film, I looked at, because I really did, I was I was curious about who is this thing for, so I looked up some reviews, and one of the things that Variety said, and you know who the audience for Variety yeah, was, yeah. certainly in 1968, Variety said that part of the reason that they thought the film was a failure mm. was that it granted nobility to the black radicals mm-hmm. that they don't deserve. Which, you know, obviously the person writing an article in, well, not obviously, but it's certainly no surprise that somebody writing a movie review for Variety in 1968 wasn't necessarily sympathetic to the cause of black radicals. Interesting, because I, just like you, went into the in the history books and read a review from 1969 by Roger Ebert. Okay, uh, and he mentions and in closing his review because he he's all on this film. He's of course, it, film. you know what that damn Robert he don't get Roger Ebert is just they don't get nothing wrong. This dude, dude. go ahead. Uh, he mentions in his uh, in his review a final note. A white friend tells me that he saw Uptight the other day and was disturbed by the audience reaction. There was a cheer every time a white guy got hit. <laughs> This should have been uh, an 
educational experience, providing our side with the same sort of feeling that blacks have had for years when a black guy got hit or had to shuffle or had to squeeze inside the step infested stereotype. Mm. Uptight finishes those days forever. Wow. He wrote that in 1969. So he's actually predicting black exploitation. Yeah. And like he's actually predict like like Melvin Van Peebles is somewhere right then writing the script to Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Damn. Yo, Roger Ebert, man. That's a bad brother. Something else I really liked about this film, you you know, again, talking about the messages. I, 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 because, you know, I've rarely seen if, if at all, I've rarely seen a text articulate the connection between sort of the, the the black power movement or the civil rights movement and, and certainly in an urban setting, because this is set in Cleveland. Yeah. And I've very rarely seen from that moment, a connection between those challenges that black people faced and their lack of access to American industry. Mm hmm. Like there's so much in here about Tank lost his job at the factory. You know, there are all these shots of all of the industry in Cleveland. And like you, I think the end drags. Yeah. But I see what the film was trying to do because part of part of it dragging is, you know, it takes place on the construction site. Right. And you can see that Tank is completely separate from this. Like, like I can't, and you know, I, there, there's a part where, where there's a, a street, he's not a preacher, but he's sort of talking and, you know, telling people about what black people need to do. And he says it, he says, we don't have our own factories. We don't have our own job. We don't have all of this. He says, you can't get a union card right, to work. And, you know, you and I both live in Philly and, you know, it was a great article Solomon Jones just wrote a great article about the, I mean, you you just got to call it what it is, the racism in the unions here in Philadelphia. Right. And, you know, how you have all of these black electricians, black carpenters, black sheet workers, black plumbers, all Mm -hmm. of these who cannot get access to these jobs. And this is something that's, you, you know, I mean, you know, my dad was a teamster. But I remember my dad talking about this in the 70s, how, you know, part of the way that you get out of poverty is having access to a good job. Right. And so many of these good jobs that we think about are tied up in the unions. And if the union doesn't let you in, I think the technical term is your ass out. Yep. And for this film in 1968 to articulate that. Some, you know, again, um, like how many times can I say amazing and remarkable? <laughs> because, you know, again, the film really does make that point. And again, I think that is that that is a testament to the script writers, you know, besides Jules uh, Desson, uh Julian Mayfield the, and Ruby D. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah Ruby D uh, 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 showing her chops. Absolutely. Uh, in this movie and acting wise in the, the, the little bit that she does, because she she clearly she she's 100 percent like, you know, a supporting player in this movie. She's not she's not really the lead. She's probably the lead name. Right. Right. She's not the lead in this. Not even the lead female, because that would be uh, um, uh, McLaughlin. Yeah. Uh, 
But her little bit as, I guess, Tank's girlfriend of a sort. Um, but that whole thing that she goes through with the welfare man. Yeah. You know, hearkening uh, back to what we see in the 70s with, with Claudine. Um, but that but that whole that whole little like commentary on the whole welfare system back then. Tank is coming just to visit her. Yeah. He's not you know, he maybe is tangentially her man. We really it's kinda like ambiguous exactly what their relationship is. There certainly is something uh, 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 um going on between them. But he's not the the parent not the, the father of her children. No. Um he's just going to visit her. The welfare guy's there. He's gotta hide. Yeah. He's just gonna go knock on the door, hey, what's up? Yeah. You know, I need to talk to somebody. But he's gotta hide because the welfare man is there and they're so there's so uh 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 prevailing in her life and checking out yeah. everything that you know they can like literally smell that like there's a dude yeah. happening and then it's like a little comedic, you know, bit that happens there. And she has to be a prostitute. Basically, like, yo, I've got to go do what I got to do. Yeah. And you see her, like, out on the street. You she know, actually says, I, I got to meet a guy who can do something for me. And then you see her on the street. You see her on the street doing what she's got to do. Just to bring down this heightened discourse a little bit. Did you see who played the welfare dude? Like, the, the welfare officer? Did you see who it was? I, I thought I recognized the face. That is character actor Leonard Jackson. Who has been from who is in uh, a brother from another planet also in Boomerang. He plays the chemist that Stranger rubs the panties across his face and then he runs out of the room and Marcus has to go and talk him down. And then Marcus tickles him and then he says, Marcus, you are a devil. That's right. Leonard Jackson. Leonard Jackson. Also. Stars in the film that I wanted to use. I was going to. I'm, I'm, we're going to do it sooner than later, but it's it's not as easy to get access to. One of my favorite '70s random films, Five on the Black Hand Side. Oh yeah, that's he's the one. father in Five on the Black Hand Side. That's a good, oh, wow, Leonard Jackson doing work. Leonard Jackson to bring discourse back up. Okay, I think Leonard Jackson's role as the welfare man is also part of the sort of ongoing conversation in this film about the black middle class and and uh, and about yeah. their role as you know as their role sort of um because that's a black welfare man that's a black welfare man and, and you know and I think um Kyle who plays sort of the old time civil rights mm-hmm. activist I think they 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 I think his conversation with with the younger activists and how they go back and forth about tactics and and what it really means to do this and you know again i i think in 2016 we don't talk you know we feel like it's all settled and done but this was very much a real vibrant conversation about whether or not the tactics that were being used by this older generation was a working Mm -hmm. b what were your goals like what is your actual goal doing this you know at one point they they ask him are you trying to run for alderman are you trying to run for 
a government position? Are you trying to get a good government job? And he responds with, what if I am? Yeah. Like, what's wrong with that? Like, if you think like the only way change happens is from the inside, like you change it from the inside and this and and and, you know, and then there's this other wonderful exchange where, you know, he talks about you know we're going to have a peaceful revolution and 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 you know this we're going to use you know sort of you know civil disobedience but peaceful civil disobedience and and corbin responds corbin who's one of the other leaders the young leader says i've never heard of a revolution that didn't involve guns yeah so it again is 1968 it's 1968 but it's so cool to see this intelligent conversation yes happening in here because you can see truly both sides of the coin absolutely both sides of the coin do have their do have their merits um and the film i think ultimately comes down on the sides of the radicals yes but I think that's maybe more so because they are kind of like the engine that's moving the story along. Sure. Um, Where this differs from the original, from, from the source material, the book and the movie, in that the book and the movie both, you know, have a laser focus on the the tank character in okay. those stories sure um and the whole irish revolution is kind of more of a backdrop as opposed to in this movie where it is very upfront okay um and i think at times that is a bit of a disservice to the does a bit of a disservice to the story mm-hmm. um because it's got a try and serve both masters a little bit sure yet i think ultimately it the blending and, and i think in trying to blend those two stories that's where you get you get the failure of the ending okay but i think the blending of it still works so much in that the radicals like I say, they do become like this engine of the movie. They do become without saying anything. It's so great. There's a, you know, the Johnny character is killed and then there's, um, uh, uh, and, and you find out that it, uh, the reason why he, he's killed is because basically tank, you know, turned on him. Yeah. Told the cops where to find him, uh, all to, for a quick dollar. Um, and then later, remorse uh, uh, of course with guilt tank shows up at the wake for johnny and he's so guilt stricken no one says a word to him right they're all wrapped in you know their own thoughts and of remorse and sadness over the over the situation they don't say anything to him i mean they take note of him there you're right most certainly uh he's a childhood friend of johnny so uh johnny's mother definitely takes note of him and it's like oh tank you know somebody get tank some coffee because tank is like flop sweating and everything like that <laughs> yes but he's he sits down on the on the floor so that he can then be looking up and see all these eyes oh, on him such a great scene and and their their wordless eyes on him and you have the extreme close-ups yes from that 
from that um from that from, from that, that viewpoint, lower ang- from that, that lower angle, angle looking up oh, at these eyes now so good you can read in these eyes if you want from tank's point of view you know you know them looking at them them seeing through me and yeah. seeing my guilt yeah but you could also read in their eyes if you if you truly wanted to cuz i think it reads hey what's wrong with tank Right, right, right. You know what I mean? Well, and, and you know, I, I, going back to the way that the, the quote-unquote radicals are depicted, I think I think they kind of set up from the very beginning and they follow through to the end that these are men and women. And women, that's a good point, yes. Who have an ethical base, who have a moral base, who have, you know, yes, one of the last things yes. that Johnny says to Tank yes. is that, you can't handle the discipline yeah of being with us and i have to say you know you know going back to the first scene in in all the use of shadow and negative space i thought that they were maybe going to pull more from the noir tradition mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if you remember the scene where tank goes in and says i know where johnny is y'all are looking where he goes into the police station they don't show him no, you just hear the voice. So I was actually waiting for some type of reversal. Yeah, where it was actually like dude, these radicals talk all this stuff, but they're just like everybody else, and one of them is corrupt, and one of them turned on, and it's not it's not Tank. Tank just got caught in this web of circumstance. Right. But the film actually follows through. Yeah, and and it does it de- it de- it depicts these men and women, you know to. I think Variety was right to observe that they do exhibit this nobility. And I have to say, I wonder if part of that doesn't come from Jewel Dissan's background because he had been blacklisted. Yeah. And so he knew like this was a man. And not a white, not a black director, Let's not a black director. Black. This, is a, this is a white director, but but he had gotten blacklisted during the Red Scare. Mm-hmm. So this is somebody who had firsthand knowledge of how the government can work against you. Yep. So I think it's very easy to see a level of sympathy between someone who had gone through all of that and the black power movement. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that that informed the way that these men and women were were kind of shot because the other part you, you know they're beautiful like the black radicals are beautiful like like they're wearing these beautiful clothes and and their hair like it really is this sort of wonderful black aesthetic with these beautiful afros and and the women are wearing these wonderful dress and you, you've got you know the prince and and everything so that they really do look like visually something that you want to aspire to as the viewer. Mm-hmm. If you are so inclined, because now, I, like, again, I don't know who this thing was for. Like, I don't know who this movie was made for. I think it, I think it was made for uh, a white audience. Well, and, and you see what they did with it. Yeah, because it, it, um, it was not a success. Because it's like this thing didn't even exist. Yeah, it was not a success, uh, and it wound up being. Uh, I had it here. Uh, after the disheartening experience, um, uh, 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 up. Uh, I read it. This was. This is pulling from. I want to get this right. This is written by Michael Gonzalez, 
from uh, this appeared in. Hold up, let me just. Uh, I, I want to give it its proper attribution. Okay, talk. Michael Gonzalez wrote in 2002 about uptight. Up, while Uptight remains one of the the best gritty political crime features from that period, and it is, it, mm-hmm. is, really, it is. really is, it was soon, according to Ruby D, withdrawn by the studio. Um, after, uh, although it can occasionally be seen on late night television or at repertoire houses, Paramount, uh, as back in t- 2012, has never released a film on video or DVD. And after the disheartening experience, the director, Jules Dassan, never made another movie in America. Crazy. It's, it, that, that's crazy. I mean, he, he, he's a flat out, you know, um, uh, great director. Well, I would, I would love to get this a proper release. I would love for something to happen and this get remastered because again, on all levels, this is a fantastic film. It was, I mean, it, it really is. And like I say, and like I, and like I mentioned in, in my little write up in the beginning is available on Amazon prime. So you yes, can watch yeah, yeah, prime. yeah, yeah. But if you look at the image on Amazon prime, you have no idea have of no what clue. you're in store for absolutely. one, because it's got Roscoe Lee Brown, who is it, Again, probably on the same level uh, in this movie as Ruby Day. Yeah, you know, tangentially a, a, co- a supporting player. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in this movie, a great does great work as yeah. always, but he's a supporting player. Yes, but that image is him sitting there, kind of like with a cocky little smile on him. It's it's him taken directly from that scene you talked about in the police, uh, the police house, and it gives the impression of this movie being a comedy. Yeah, juxtapose that against the actual movie poster, which is starkly black and white, which is Tank cowering down in the in uh, uh, at the bottom of the poster, as all of these words, all of the the vitriol that has been foisted upon him in this movie, is seen in captions just yeah. get, cascading down upon him. That is such a powerful yeah. image and, and truly represents what this movie is. I was thinking about a few years ago, there was this big hullabaloo. Uh, this is probably going back over 10 years ago. Definitely over 10 years ago. There's a big hullabaloo because um, uh, Hollywood was made to revisit the Manchurian Candidate. Yes, and can and re- revisit it and reconsider it for the masterpiece that I think it rightfully is. Absolutely, a fantastic movie uh, that was greatly underappreciated at its time. Yeah, absolutely. And now, Manchurian Candidate is considered a certifiable classic. Uh, runs on Turner Classic Movies um, all the time, and. That is the type of um, uh, the type of consideration that a movie like Uptight it really does deserves. It really does one hundred. It really does. One last thing to lower the discourse. The character Corbin is played by Dick Anthony Williams. Yes, I mentioned that. Another great working actor from this period. 
Yes, my favorite. We'll go on to his most recognizable role in. Are you about to talk about the Mac? Yes. Where he plays Pretty Tony. Yes. Plays Pretty Tony, which most recognizable role in the most recognizable scene Mm. from the Mac, where they're both pimps and Pretty Tony's lady goes to um, Goldie. Yeah. And Pretty Tony gets upset about it. And Goldie says, now listen here, Mr. Pretty Tony, you know the rules. Your lady chose me. Now then, we can handle this like gentlemen or we can get into some gangster this, that, and the other. (laughs) This movie, Dick Anthony Williams' debut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with Max Julian. How about that? How about that? How about that? Max Julian doing, you know, subtle work. I was just about to say, this is the best thing I've ever seen Max Julian do. <laughs> this is the best thing I've ever seen Max Julian. And, and we sort of buried the lead. Like, it was so much going on. But, but I, like, I knew that this was something special. Because I was like, wow, Max Julian is, is, is doing all right right now. Yeah. And then it just kept getting better and better. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Best role I've ever seen him in. Yeah, he he really does work. I want to just mention uh, real quick because I kind of touched on it uh, a little bit. You know, uh, you you caped up for Raymond St. Jock and Roscoe Lee Brown. Uh, The lead female militant, uh, Jeannie, played by Janet McLaughlin, Mm -hmm. who is one of those actors who just like Leonard Jackson turns up in so many things. Yeah. Especially at that time. Oh yeah. And is, and it is, uh, just adds a level of, okay, I may be in for something a little good because Janet's in here. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh, a very unsung, uh, actor of the late sixties and early seventies. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, Give her her just due. Absolutely, for being in this film. Absolutely, yeah. I, I like my. I like me some uh, Janet McLaughlin. <laughs> She's cool. She she would go on to do a lot of you know the uh, fair share of television. I was about to say a lot of TV. Yeah, a lot of TV. A lot of t- a lot of TV. But um, she did she did uh, she did a lot of work, man. I'm just uh, looking here uh, on her and and W D uh, in uh, IMDb. She did work on the girl. Um, uh, uh, the girl from Uncle. She had some bit parts in Star Trek, The Mod Squad. Uh, she was an uptight, change of mind, darker than Amber, Sounder, which is where she got a like a big, a big uh, role in. Um, and then uh, last seen in 1999's uh, The Thirteenth Floor. Oh, okay. Yeah, she uh, uh, unfortunately passed away in 2010 at the age of 77. Uh, in Los Angeles, right, right. Uh, so Janet McLaughlin, uh, she was a bad, she, she was a bad sister. All right, much love, much love. So uptight, yo, y'all better see this movie. This is this is the one. This is this is the, this is yeah, this th- is that little gem. Like this is the one. Like like yeah. this is you, you know um, you know it's not my favorite film that we've reviewed so far. No, but no, it is the most unexpected. Mm-hmm. Film like 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 you know um you know I'm a Eve's Bayou guy right uh, uh, uh middle of nowhere 
I, I kind of knew going in that mm-hmm. that this was going to be something special. But this really, like, this really is, this really is a film that, um, like, I know we say you need to go see this, and we kind of say it about a lot of stuff, but you really do need to make time and see this film if you haven't seen this film. Which I'm fairly certain you haven't. Yeah, 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 because, you know, again... I think they buried this thing like 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 it's a shame. like you know I think uh, you know you don't you, like you never want to be like super arrogant and say well you know well I've never heard of it therefore yeah. but you know I'm a fairly well read guy and I love you know like there are so many actors in this that I love mm-hmm. and I had never even heard of this thing yeah uh, I was reading again from uh, Michael Gonzalez's uh, story um uh in 19 uh in 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 Ebony back in in November of 1968 Paramount Studios actually tried to bow out of their commitment to bankroll the film according to Ruby D they did not want to release the movie um but after Jules passionately argued the project's relevance uh Paramount executive uh said call me crazy but we're going to do it uh and then they so they bankrolled the movie uh with a budget of a little over two million dollars. All right. Uh, so, and, and Desan, a, a noted actor, he did the he, uh, a man from the who did his apprenticeship with Alfred Hitchcock and directed uh, the Naked City in 1948 and the Night in the City in 19 in 1950. Um, just a phenomenal actor, director, uh, director. Excuse yeah. me, phenomenal director who uh, unfortunately got caught up in that whole un-American activities committee junk um, and that kind of curtailed his career for a while and, yeah but uh, this is this is a movie worth revisiting ladies and gentlemen absolutely you owe it to yourself to absolutely see like I say it's available on Amazon Prime right now so if you've got an Amazon Prime you can go uh, stream it for uh, uh, really check it out it's, it's underappreciated under uh, recognized uh, great piece of cinema yes and definitely a black film of note alright that's going to do it for us today on the Michaud Mission we will return next week with uh, the next stop on our journey which will be Vincent's Choice which uh, I think we're going to go uh, a couple of years in the future we're going couple to go years to, in the future. to the 70s going to do the monkey hustle yeah we're going to do the monkey hustle with Yafit Koto uh, and Rudy Ray Moore. Oh boy. Uh, can't wait. Um, until then, check this out on MichelleMission.com as well as on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and every place that good podcasts be, including the Black Tribbles Podcast Network, which you can find on BlackTribbles.com. So for Vince, this is Len in parting. We say, We'll see you when it's time to meet again. It's time to bid adieu. It's been a pleasure knowing you. I'll see you when it's time to meet again. <laughs>